We're continuing this morning with our message series, Shipwrecked, and we're on week four of the series. And we started off talking about how life circumstances in general can cause us at times to become shipwrecked in our faith. And then the following week, we talked about how pain and suffering can cause us to become shipwrecked in our faith. Last week, we talked about worldly wisdom can cause us to become shipwrecked in our faith. And this morning, I want to talk to you about how imperfect pastors, and I'm going to extend it really beyond that, not only imperfect pastors, but imperfect churches, imperfect church leaders, and ultimately imperfect Christians can cause people to become shipwrecked in their faith. I have to tell you, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and if I was to think of the number one reason why people uh, I hear stop going to church, uh, their encounter with the pastor, with the church, or a church leader uh, is really probably top or, or, or near top. Uh, e- even on a lesser scale than that, what you have happen all the time is you have people that shuffle and transfer between different churches. And, uh, and when you ask them why they're coming, a lot of times because they had beef with or an issue with a pastor. Um, I'm sure over the 25 years, I've, you know, there's been a fair amount of people who've left out of here because they had a beef with or, or had kind of a run-in with, with me. But I've always been clear to people from the very beginning that, because at the very beginning, uh, there, there was this church that was bleeding a lot of its members over here. And I would hear things like, well, I was, I was sick and in the hospital and I never heard from the pastor. Or I would hear that, okay, I didn't show up for church for six months and, and no one called me and, or, or I didn't hear from the pastor. And I would always stop people right there and then and say, listen, if, if what you're telling me is that you're coming here because at some point you've been disappointed by your pastor, then I need you to know that at some point I am going to disappoint you. Why? Because in the end, uh, pastors are imperfect. Um, churches are imperfect. Uh, church leaders are imperfect. So you, you just have that rotation of people between churches because of uh, the imperfection of pastors. But then you literally have some people who stop going to church uh, because of it. And I have to tell you, like, for, for, for those of us as pastors who take this seriously, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to know that, you know what, like someone may stop going to church because of their encounter with you. And maybe even worse, like what if someone just stops believing in God because of their encounter with you? That is a, a, a lot of pressure. Now, I have to tell you, like I, I recognize that pressure. I fear that pressure. I, I embrace that pressure. But I also understand that that's a cop out. Because in the end, anyone who want, was going to stop going to church because of the pastor or, or, or is going to stop believing in God because of the pastor of the church, they're putting their trust in places that they shouldn't put their trust. Because in the end, pastors are people too. Churches are imperfect. Pastors aren't going to be perfect. Churches aren't going to be perfect. You know, pastors are going to have failure of thought. They're going to have failure of, of word. And how they say things, we're going to have failure of deed. And I recognize that we are 
to show Christ to people as pastors. I recognize that we're to, to be good examples. And I would hope that your average pastor is a little bit more sanctified, more uh, holy in their faith, more uh, religious in, in their approach than your average member. All those things hopefully are true. But on this side of eternity, there's not gonna be a perfect pastor and there's not gonna be a perfect church. And here's the problem is we, as people, we like to put our pastors on pedestals. And you know what's even a greater problem is there's a lot of pastors who like being put on pedestals. They like you looking up at them. That makes them feel good. You look up at them like they're like, wow, they can look down at you and feel big, you know, good about themselves or whatever. And so the problem is, is we put pastors on pedestals. A bigger problem is a lot of pastors like being put on pedestals. But I have told you guys many times, I don't like heights. I don't like heights physically, and I don't like heights spiritually. So I'm always trying to keep myself off that pedestal. I'm usually trying to tell you my, my failings and, 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 and some of my weaknesses and, and how I struggle with things just like you guys. Why? Number one, so that you can't use it against me, right? Because like if I, if I say it, I'm like, yeah, I know, I, I've said that. But because it, in the other respect that we shouldn't be putting our pastor, pastors on pedestals. So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about um, imperfections of religious leaders and the effects that it has on people's faith and really how to overcome and keep that from shipwrecking our faith. And as always, I like to root all my messages in Scripture. So I'm going to start by telling you a, an Old Testament story in which... Um, uh, a pastor's failures, not really his failures, uh, but his kids' failures cause people to stumble. Then I'm going to tell you a New Testament story about it. And then we're going to talk about what that looks like in the church today. So the first story is from the Old Testament. And it's, from, it's about this guy named Eli. And Eli, he, if, if I remember right, he's like, I think, the second to last judge before the time of the king's. Uh, in, in Israel's history. But not only is he the second to last judge, but he's really the high priest over Israel. And Eli's, he's not a bad guy. He's a pretty good high priest. But the problem isn't Eli, the problem is Eli's kids. And the problem is, is Eli doesn't have his kids under control. And so let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And this is what it says about Eli and his kids starts off by saying, Eli's sons were scoundrels. Scoundrels. What's a scoundrel? It's a villain. It's someone who is worthless. Someone without honor. So Eli, he's fine, but his kids are worthless. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priest that whatever any of the people offered, whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled. And he would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would then take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. 
But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now the person that's making the sacrifice would say to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, and they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading amongst the Lord's people, it isn't good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. And as a result, as a result it was the Lord's will to put them to death. What's... What's this whole thing about meat and the fork and that Eli's kids are doing that are so bad? Well, the people would come and make an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and much like today, you know, pastors get paid through the offering of the, the members, uh, the, attend, the, the people they attend. That's how the priests got paid in, in Old Testament days. So the people would come and make this offering to the Lord, the sacrifice, and you the priest is supposed to have the meat boil, the fat boil off the meat before they plunge their fork into it. And if you've ever cooked in a crock pot, you kind of understand the concept behind that. Once the, the fat has cooked off, the meat's become so tender. Listen, if you stick your fork in a, a crock pot, you're not going to get a ton of meat. But if you're sticking your fork in that meat before that, that fat's boiled off, when it's still pretty raw, you're going to get big chunks of, of meat. So they're, they're robbing people of their sacrifice to the Lord. It, it would be like if we're still passing the plate nowadays and I just kind of follow the plate around and every time someone put money in the plate, I grabbed as much as could fit in my hand and just stuck it in my pocket. And you're sitting there thinking, man, I just put this in there and I think only like 10% is gonna actually kind of make it to the church. The rest is going in, in Pastor Greg's pocket. That, that's what's going on here. They're, they're, they're robbing the people of their, their offering, of their sacrifice to God. So God's not real happy about it. And he says as a result that Eli's family uh, will no longer be able to be able to serve as priests over Israel. Not that Eli was bad, but his kids were scoundrels. Not only doing that, that, but some of the other things that it said that they were doing as well. So move the story forward. Eli is now old. He's 98 years old. And the Philistines come and they attack Israel and they take the Ark of the Covenant, which Eli is the high priest and his family uh, are ministering over. And in the process of the, the Ark of the Covenant being stolen, um, Eli's two sons are killed in that battle. And word comes back to Eli that his two sons are dead. And at 98 years old, he falls out of the chair he's sitting in and he breaks his neck and dies. And the house of Eli no longer serves as priest over Israel. That, 
That's an Old Testament example. We're not told that, that people were falling away from the faith because of what Eli's kids were doing, but it, it wasn't looking good on the priestly family. It wasn't looking good on the faith. If, if those that are responsible is, is, you know, representing God and in, in, in that intermediary between God and people are acting this way, it, it certainly wasn't doing good. In the New Testament, uh, we can see an example of this too, uh, because in the New Testament, we, we hear about the, the religious leaders called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, they didn't have moral failings per se. They, we're not told that they were bad parents like Eli, but they were jerks. They were spiritual snobs. And because they were jerks and spiritual snobs, this was keeping people from, from coming to, to know God and people that were in their sin from kind of repenting and coming back to God. Look at Matthew 23, 13 to 15. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter nor will you let those who, who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you will travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you will make them twice the child of hell than what they were before, or twice the child of hell than you are. This is not a compliment. Because once again, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, they were kind of on that pedestal. They had this holier-than-thou attitude. They, they, they had that, that spiritual, you know, er, being arrogant and kind of looking down, lording it over the people. And so it, it prevented people from, from really coming to the faith. And those who had fallen away, who had already been shipwrecked, kind of, you know, they kept them at arm's length that they were really never welcome to come back. Now, I don't know how many of us in here have had kind of run-ins with the church or run-ins with the pastor, but it, it can cause us, once again, to be shipwrecked in our faith, to stop going to church, and, and, and a lot of problems. When I think of in my lifetime, the one thing that, that's happened that has been uh, the biggest black eye on the church, once again, in my lifetime, that has probably caused a lot of people uh, to become shipwrecked in their faith it's, it's got to be probably the, the, the sex abuse scandals of the Catholic Church. And as I was kind of working on the message, I'm like, when was that? Because everything kind of runs together. And I think it was like the late 90s when, when I was actually just kind of coming out as being a pastor. So if you're older like me, you certainly remember it. If you're younger, maybe you don't. But, but it kind of went down like this, like, there was a great cover-up in the Catholic Church where these priests were sexually abusing these young boys in these parishes, and when it would come, uh, come out that they had done that, uh, they, they weren't being punished. They, they weren't being turned into the authorities. They weren't being fired from the ministry. What the Catholic Church would do is they would cover it up, and they would move them to some other parish in some other state uh, where no one ever heard of them, and really put them in with a whole new fresh set, set of potential victims. And, and and they did this for a great number of years, knowingly. 
And, and when this all started coming out and people started finding out, I can't help but think, I wonder how many people who were abused by a priest to this day like, will never walk into a church again. I wonder how many people who were abused by a priest, not only will they not, but their, their, their mom won't or their dad won't or their uncle won't or their brother won't or their sister won't because of, uh, of what they experienced. And not only that, like as this was put on the media and, and, and just put out there, like the largest like church in, in the world, the Catholic church, the, the people who are to represent Christ themselves, if this is how they handled stuff like that, I wonder how many people are like, you know what? I'm not going to go to church. It's corrupt. I, and, and what they stand for is corrupt because of the sin that, that they just tried to cover up. This goes on in big ways like that, but it goes on in small ways all the time too. I have to tell you, like when I was in college, I, I was hit on by a, a pastor that I worked for. And I'm not going to go through all the details of, of, of what that looked like and, and what he tried and, and this and this and that. But I, I mean, I can tell you, like, my faith wasn't shipwrecked by it because, you know, it was inappropriate and I told him, knock it off. But, but I mean, I understand that pastors are people too and, and they do stupid things and, and whatever. But what's interesting is probably like 15 years later, the same pastor I ended up hearing uh, was arrested in a park for solicitation of a male prostitute. And as a result of that, uh, he, uh, he had to resign his call in the ministry. Uh, he ended up getting on with another denomination that that wasn't a big deal uh, that he had done that. But I wonder how many people in his church like stopped going to church or began to question the church or the faith because of the actions of their pastor. You know, so oftentimes when we think of, of just, you know, pastors fall for, pastors falls from grace and different things like that being sexually oriented, but there's just so many other ways in which that shows itself. Uh, much like I started by talking about Eli and the whole parenting thing. Look at what 1 Timothy 3, 4 says. It says he must manage his, that is the pastor, must manage his own family well. And he must see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It's like Eli. I mean, how are you supposed to take care of Israel when like your kids are acting this way? I mean, Eli should have had his kids put to death under, under the rules and laws of, of, of Moses at that time. And, and what's funny is like, even though this is a requirement of, of pastors today, uh, pastors do not have the reputation of having the best kids. In fact, there's a phrase that is used for referring to pastor's kids, and it's called PKs, preacher's kids, pastor's kids, and it's not a compliment. It's meant that, you know what, pastor's kids are normally hellions. 
because they live in like a glass bowl and, and maybe, maybe the, the, the pastor dad is too tough on them or the pastor dad's too busy trying to save people over here, save people over there that he doesn't even give his kids the attention that they need and, and, and they turn out to be uh, not great kids. I remember the church that I grew up in, that pastor's kids like didn't even go to church once uh, they, they grew up and they're out of the house. It wasn't until much later that they came back around to the faith. This can be something that causes a stumbling block when you see that a pastor can't even manage his own kids. Uh, another thing that, that we see in the church that is a black eye in uh, pastors and ministry staff is sometimes you'll hear that they're swindling money. And, and I have to tell you, like, you don't hear about that one so much anymore. Um, I think they've de-elevated, like, the, the, the role of a pastor like, the, I don't mean this to disrespect used car salesmen, but like literally that is how people see. I mean, it, it just used to be elevated. Now it's like, it's, you know, I don't mean disrespect lawyer. Okay, I'm going to just end up disrespecting everyone, right? They're not thought highly of. So I don't think like this even makes the news anymore. But it's not just the pastors that sometimes swindle. And honestly, like if we're going to blame sex abuse on Catholics, uh, the, the pastors stealing money tends to be in more rural congregations, not a lot of accountability. A lot of times they're Baptist congregations. But it's not just in those, the pastors, a lot of times it's the financial secretary that does it or the treasurer. And what are you supposed to think when, when you hear the story of this pastor or this financial secretary or this treasurer just stole a quarter of a million dollars? What's your feeling supposed to be towards church? What's your feeling supposed to be towards God if these are God's representatives doing that? I have to tell you, that's why from the very like, get-go when we started this church, I wanted appropriate checks and balances because I never wanted that to be an issue. And so I'll tell you, like for me, we not only have the appropriate checks and balances between treasurer and financial secretary, but as pastor, I can look at all the numbers. Like I can make sure no one's stealing, but I can't, I can't adjust them. I can't manipulate them. I can't enter anything in to change it because that keeps me from being able to do it as well. But I also need to know you, you need to know my heart. We've got that little snack cart in the cafe that some of you have seen. I don't think in 23 years I've ever borrowed a bottle of water from that. In fact, most people are like, ah, you know, they just kind of take something. They're like, oh, you know, they'll put in a 20 later, something like that. If I'm taking something, money's going in because I'm afraid God's going to miss it. Like if I take today and I pay like tomorrow, I think somehow he's going to miss it. I know there's a problem in theology there, but it's good. It keeps me honest, right? And so you, know, you have pastors and, and financial sectors or church leaders, you know, they, they swindle. Uh, you know, another way that they swindle, and you hear about this from time to time, is, is they kind of cheat uh, in terms of like the IRS, especially these pastors that extreme, get extremely wealthy, which I'm about to talk about, have their personal aircraft. There is a church literally 12 miles west of here that has been investigated by the IRS. There is a church, large church, about 12 miles east of here that have been investigated by the IRS because of their practices. When people hear about that, what do you think their perception is of, of, of the church and of ministry and ultimately of Christians in Christ himself? Which kind of gets into the next one, you know, pastors that are getting rich off of ministry. When I was 
a kid, like late kid, probably like high school years, that, that seemed to be like the heart of like the, the televangelist ministry thing. And you got these pastors going around and they're in these multi-thousand, $10,000 suits and fancy shoes. They're throwing money around and they're driving their expensive sports cars. And, and, and it works, right? The, these people had so many followers uh, because they liked the glitz and they liked the glamour. These pastors were even able to convince people, hey, just like send in your prayer request with a certain offering and I will personally pray for that. I mean, what a money-making kind of deal and people bought into that. But as much as it worked on this end, I wonder how many people, and I know a lot, saw that, were turned off by that and thought, if this is what the church is, if this is what the pastor is, if this is what this religion is, I don't want anything to do with it. And I'm here to tell you that I think a lot got turned off by it. And how is it that, and I've said this over and over and over again, how is it that we get rich off the gospel? Not only as pastors, but Christian authors and Christian musicians. The Christmas stuff is out. So let's just think about what God did. You, You have Christian singers, Christian authors, and Christian pastors getting rich off the gospel when we're telling people about God who gave up everything that he had to, 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 to be born homeless in, in a manger in poverty, to, to live his life basically in poverty, to carry out his ministry in poverty, to ultimately be falsely arrested, falsely accused, spat upon, mocked, a crown of thorns crushed into his skull, whipped to the point of flesh coming off of his body, nailed to a cross and a spear in his side. And we have people, Christian singers, Christian pastors and Christian authors getting rich off that story. God help us. And do you think that turns some people off to the church and to the faith itself? Absolutely. Then there, there, there's pastors that it's their struggle with their addictions that can cause people to kind of lose faith in the church. Pastors are people too. They become drug addicted. They can become alcohol addicted, pornography addicted. I had a pastor growing up that I remember uh, the Sunday that he announced, I think I was home from college, the Sunday that he announced to the congregation that he uh, had been suffering with an alcohol addiction for X number of years and he was you know, resigning the ministry. And just our mouths open as he shared that. Then there's pride. And think about the damage, the pride of not only pastors, but other ministry uh, staff and so forth, the, the damage that that has had on people in terms of uh, their, their encounters with, with ministry leaders and, and maybe choosing to no longer go to church. Proverbs 16.5 says this, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. 
And, and so pride can be a stumbling block for, for, for people that have encountered that in the church. And then the next one's a big one, church conflict. And, and, I, and I, have you noticed the theme here? I said, I had a pastor that hit on me uh, in college. I had one that uh, resigned because he was an alcoholic. And I've shared with you before, I was part of a church that split in conflict. So this stuff, like it, it happens all the time. And there's so much collateral damage that happens because of it. Uh, this church was a church in South Fort Worth. And, and it's complicated in, in how it happens. Just like families have conflict, sometimes churches can have conflict. In fact, I'd be curious of what percentage of churches at some point throughout the course of their ministry have split. I bet you'd be pretty high. Um, but, but this church it was an old church in South Fort Worth and this new young pastor kind of comes in. When I say new young, he was probably, you know, around 40, but for that church that was young. Um, and, uh, and he just had a different approach and, and the people that were kind of the old guard, they didn't like it and, and they were trying to kind of run him out. And I remember like the last voters meeting before the church split, there was all these accusations made back and forth. And one of the things that they didn't like is the pastor accused the, the church church janitor of being an alcoholic. And so the church splits, my family goes with the pastor's group, and that's five years later, he announces, oh, by the way, I've been an alcoholic for a long time, and he resigns the ministry. I wonder how many people who, who go through that conflict think, you know what, if this is how Christians and believers are to act amongst one another, why do I even want to be a part of a church? And how many people have abandoned their faith because of it. If you want to see a good example of how ugly church conflict can be, look up the church Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a church plant in 1996 in a, the most unusual place. It was in Seattle, Washington. And the reason I say it's unusual because the Northwest is not known as being very religious. And so there's this dynamic, charismatic, strong personality pastor that started the church there in 1996. And uh, it started out in his home, but at its peak, it was in 15 different locations in four states. At his peak, a quarter of a million people were listening to the church's message every week. A quarter of a million people. At its peak, 17 years after it was founded, it had a, an average worship attendance over 12,000 people. So it started in the guy's home, and over 17 years, it had over 12,000 people showing up every Sunday, a quarter of a million people listening to his message. And then word got out that this guy's a jerk. This guy's a bully. In fact, this guy had a motto. He said that his motto was is that the Mars Hill bus, anyone who gets in the way, he wants to see a pile of, of dead bodies behind the, the Mars Hill bus. And the bigger the pile of bodies, the better it is. In other words, don't get in the way of this ministry. You know, it, it doesn't matter who we run over along the way. And so word came out that this guy was heavy-handed. He, 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 was, he was a bully. He was, he, he, he was just abusive in, in his power in many different ways, not only amongst members, but of staff. And what's interesting is there's a podcast that's been done on this church. And if you're interested, you should listen to it because a large number of people, this was a huge congregation. So you can think of how many staff, a large amount of those people don't go to church today. In fact, 
many of them don't even believe in God anymore because of this pastor. And I wonder how many people in this, you know, that, that area that has a propensity for not being religious anyways got turned off to church and stopped going to church because of how this pastor behaved. You know, I say all the time, life is messy. And if life's messy, I'm here to tell you church is going to be messy too because life is made up of sinful people and church is made up of sinful pastors, sinful members, sinful church leaders. I've seen many people that, that have been turned off to church because of a personality clash with the pastor. And I have to be here to tell you, like, I, I, I've had... I guarantee in 25 years of ministry, I've allowed my personality to get in the way of some discussions and some disagreements that has caused some people, I'm sure, uh, to not think very fondly upon not only me, but the church itself. I've seen over the course of ministry, many people being disillusioned by the politics of church. Now, the reality is there should not be any politics in church. But the way we like to do church, especially in America, is we set it up like a democracy. And so then there are all these different kind of politics as the pastor's trying to get certain people in certain positions to, to, you know, to, to get certain things done. And, and I have to tell you, like when I started this church 23 years ago, and for the people that were on that call committee, and there's still some that are here to this day, they'll tell you, like, I, I wanted to keep politics out of this church. I didn't want there to be a lot of boards. I didn't want there to be a lot of, you know, uh, committees or different things that are all kind of wrestling for control because what happens in those churches is the pastors then are like, oh no, I can't have this person over this committee. And so they begin to try to ask other people, listen, I don't need, you know, so-and-so on this one. Will you run against them? And all this stuff goes on. Why? So that they can ultimately do what they want to do, but they can only do it if they're playing politics. And for me, it's like, you know what? Let me run this ministry. If I do it well, keep me. If I don't, get rid of me, right? There shouldn't be politics in the church. And then like another thing that runs people off from church is like church appears like a business. And I have to tell you in 25 years of being in ministry, I've had a couple of treasurers who've said, you know, I don't think I can do this. I don't think the church should be a business and I'm seeing a side of the church that, that, that I don't want to see. I've tried my hardest not to make the church into being a business, uh, but I'm here to tell you, like if we spend more than we bring in, there ain't a church. And so sometimes you have to make difficult decisions of this might be a great cause, but we just can't support it. And people are like, well, how could we not? Well, because in the end, if we're spending more than we bring in, we're not here, Right? but that can turn people off to the church. I, I've talked to you before that like the fact that in most churches, they're always asking for money. How many people do you think have stopped going to church because like they have this perception that the church is always asking for money? It's why many, many, many years ago, I stopped passing the offering baskets. And even when I did, we only did it on Sunday. We wouldn't do it on special services. We wouldn't do it on midweek services. We wouldn't do it because I didn't want to reinforce this idea that already existed out there, that pastors are just getting rich off of this and the church only cares about money. Think about how many people have been turned off because of that. 
And you know what? It's another big one that you probably have never heard before, but it's a big one of mine too. Is like, I think it's a turn off to some people, especially people that aren't Christians, that the church is always asking for discounts. Now, listen, I'm not against, like, if someone offers a discount for the church, but I don't think, and, and like, God have mercy on my soul if I'm, like, incorrect on a few of these. I'm speaking in absolutes. I normally don't speak in absolutes because there's always exceptions. But in general, I, I don't think I ever have. But if I did once, forgive me. But, I, I, like, I don't think I've ever asked, like, hey, we're a church. Can you give us a better deal? Because you know what? You're running your business and you need to pay your bills and cover your family's needs and so forth. And why does the church have to be so cheap all the time anyways? You see how we reinforce, like the pastors are getting rich and and they only talk about money and they always want discounts. You, You see how this stuff can kind of cause people to be like, you know, I'm not sure I'm into this church thing. In the end, We have to remember that Christ is a perfect reflection of God. Not the church, and certainly not the pastor. You know what, as pastors, we are called to imitate Jesus, but don't ever confuse your pastor or your church worker with Jesus. Jesus alone is a perfect representation and reflection of God the Father. And if you put your hope and you put your trust in Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. If you put your hope and trust in the church, they will disappoint you. If you put your hope and trust in in the pastor, he will disappoint you or any other ministry leader for that that matter. You know, I, I remember this weird phrase from seminary. It's a Latin phrase, so I don't normally try to impress you with my failing memory of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. But... I'll share this phrase with you because I remember it so clearly to this day. Ex opere operato. And what that literally means is from the work performed, that something is valid by the work being done, not the person doing it. So in the baptism today, even if I am a scoundrel, that doesn't affect the baptism because God's doing the work. In handing out the Lord's Supper and preaching the messages, even if the pastor is a scoundrel, God's doing the work through it. Even in the Christian singer or the entertainer that wrote this amazing hymn or this amazing song that you love on the radio that someone can come back and say when they were 17 they did this or just six months ago do you know that they did this that 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 in the end it doesn't matter because God is working through the work of that person rather than the person itself that even when you're receiving communion from that person and you're like, you know what? I saw them at such and such place drunk six months ago. I don't think they should be giving out communion. Well, guess what? You were probably drunk six months ago too. That God works even through the failings of the people that lead the church. Listen, you're always gonna be able to find fault with me. If you need help, I can give you some ideas. You're always going to be able to find fault with Joe. And I know Joe well enough that if you need help, he'll give you some ideas. You're always going to be able to find fault in the person that's leading communion. You're going to always be able to find fault in the person that's, that's teaching the Bible class. You're always going to be able to find fault in the person who's the chairman of the congregation. You know why? Because ain't none of us perfect. And you know what's really cool about that? 
is God always seems to carry out his purpose and his plan through the imperfect and broken people. I've said this a hundred times and I'll say it a hundred more. If God is using you, do not consider it a compliment because God uses the broken to accomplish his purpose. Think about like Abraham. He was a pagan. He didn't believe in God. His dad didn't believe in God. But this person who didn't even believe in God, God says, you will be my, my people. You'll be my child. And he creates the people of Israel that ultimately brings redemption to you and I through this pagan. And think about Moses. Moses was a murderer, right? And God takes this murderer and it's this murderer that he uses to, to bring his people out of Egypt and to lead them into the desert for 40 years. Think about Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. She's a prostitute, but God uses a prostitute to deliver Israel or, or for Israel to be able to, to defeat Jericho. And ultimately, Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. God uses a hot-headed adulterer or murderer by the name of David to be the greatest king in all of Israel. And he's in the lineage of Jesus as well. God used a teenager, I mean a teenager, because we know about teenagers, to be the mother of Jesus. And God used a vile, murderous man by the name of Paul, or Saul, to become the greatest missionary for Christ. God can do a lot of things through broken and less than perfect people. Don't let broken people, don't let a broken church, don't let a broken church leaders or pastors or whoever shipwreck your faith. Pray for your broken churches and your broken church. Pray for your broken pastors and your broken leaders and show them a little grace when they're less than perfect. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious almighty God, this is a big one for many people. We've put our pastors and churches on pedestals and when they fail, and they always will, we just maybe question the faith altogether or even stop going to church. I pray, gracious God, for, for those of us as ministry leaders, for, for us as a church, and every one of us in here as Christians, that we would recognize that we represent you and that you would help us to live in obedience to you and as you've called for us to live. But at the same time, gracious God, I pray that all of us in here would ultimately know that none of us in here can be perfect. And in our imperfection, you still use us. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd help us to show grace to one another in that as well. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray, amen.